Hello and welcome to the Disability Education and Society podcast. This is a podcast for collective learning and unlearning in the struggle for intersectional liberation. We focus on educational realms expanding to other societal areas. We share our stories as academics as well as those of our featured guests, including disability activists involved with multifaceted dimensions of systems equity, self-determination efforts, anti-ableist, and anti-racist liberation. Join us as co-conspirators. Today's episode features Dr. Anna Stetsinko. Dr. Stetsinko is a full professor in the PhD program in psychology and the chair of developmental psychology with a joint appointment in urban education program, both at the Graduate Center and the City University of New York. With her roots in Vygotsky's project, she has worked to conceptually enrich, critically expand, and politically de-domesticate this project. With interdisciplinary expertise in psychology, education, philosophy, and biology, and an international background, her works connect across and push beyond many cutting-edge developments from a variety of frameworks, all with an emphasis on agency, political commitments, and social transformation. This is cumulatively presented in her concepts, among others, of the transformative activist stance, collectivisual contributions, subjectivity, and pedagogy of daring. Well, we're so thrilled today to have Dr. Sestenko join us on the Disability Education and Society podcast. And we are looking forward to this great conversation um, that that I, I think all of our podcast uh, engagers will really appreciate. So Dr. Sestenko, we would like you to start by sharing a close story that illustrates the enactment of transformative agency within marginalized groups. Yes, absolutely. So first of all, thank you very much for inviting me. This is a great pleasure and uh, I'm very uh, excited to be with you and to share some thoughts. And uh, yes, I hope we just dialogue and uh, probe each other and uh, I don't mean it to be a lecture at all. Yes, so a story. Well, the thing is that um, I do a lot of philosophical work, work, and I believe that philosophy can be a story too, if if it's not a too abstract kind of endeavor, if it's not uh, disconnected from uh, the issues on the ground. Philosophy can be very much narrative and like a storytelling. So let me bo- do both things. I I will tell some stories, but I also want to begin with some points that are general, I could say philosophical, but I hope they don't sound too too disengaged or disentangled from realities on the ground. So basically, when I write and talk about agents, transformative agency, and I often call it radical transformative agency, what I mean to say is that we all have agency. People have agency. We always matter. We always make a difference in the world. So this is a very deep philosophical position, by the way, with implications for what we take reality to be, what we take truth to be, what is objectivity, and on and on from there. But it comes down to very mundane almost, I would like to say, 
with very tangible things, such as knowing that we all matter. None of us is not part of something very important. We are, so that's one of the points I'm making very often is that there is the overall process of, you can call it world historical process of people on this planet Earth. And we are all engaged in this one process in one way or another. We all make a difference in it, whether we mean it, whether we want it, whether we know it, but nonetheless, we matter. We have agency, that's one way to put it, we matter, we make a difference. When a baby is born, the baby changes everything. The baby has agency. Yes, we can argue about types of agency that babies have, but they change everything around them. That They turn people into parents. They turn other people into grandparents. They turn the whole life up, upside, upside down. Uh, or, and that is locally perhaps, but then, People have agency throughout their lives. And this goes against the canon of traditional approaches because the traditional, still prevalent approaches, they all position us as if we are passive, as if we do not matter, as if we are just recipients of stimuli from the outside world, as if we are disconnected from the world, and as if we don't have a voice, don't have agency and don't have an input or contribution to make, but we do. And uh, it comes down to us as scholars and educators to be able to acknowledge, to appreciate, and to honor the agency of especially our students, especially those who are from marginalized communities, who struggle with certain challenges more than others, such as immigrant students, students of color, students who have uh, uh, varying levels of abilities in various domains and so on. They come with especially important types of agency that we need to, to acknowledge and to appreciate. And then it comes down to this agency being amplified and uh, comes down to us also being able to provide the tools sometimes as educators to the, the students, the tools of agency, and so on. So that's the philosophical position. I hope it sounds almost narrative because it is a story of who we are. Like we are agents, we are authors, we are creators, but always with a pre prefix, we're always, always with a co-part, co-participants, co-creators, co-contributors, co-everything, which means it's always social, always with others. It's never about isolated people. It's about this communal forms of mattering and being able to contribute to the world. And this is why I started my book, actually, with a quote from Nelson Mandela, the book, I mean, from 2016, The Transformative Mind. But that was the epigraph to the book when Nelson Mandela, let me see if I have it here, that he wrote that we all have agency and um, we have more of it than we know. Oh yes, here are the words. The exact words are, our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. Actually, who are you not to be? You playing small does not serve the world. Us playing small does not serve the world. We, I mean, it, it might sound like very poetic or abstract, but it's not. It really is. I hope we will get there also. It, it has very big consequences of how we 
are in our classrooms, how we interact with students, how we see teaching and learning and knowledge and mind. So that's like this philosophical story. And if you want to interrupt me here, uh, you're more than welcome. Otherwise, I will tell like the story story. I have, I have a, it's sort of a story of mine that interjects with this idea of agency. Um, and I think it's a very important um, discussion in terms of what happens with disability. When I went to um, the School for the Blind, uh, I went to the School for the Blind when I was four. Uh, one of my best friends, um, he was blind. Um, he was older than me and he, um, I think had become blind through some kind of accident uh, where he was hit or hit a, a tree or I don't know exactly what happened. Um, over the years, he became catatonic. Mm. Um, he no longer spoke um, and he would stand uh, in, in the playground for hours. Um, by himself. And I, I do remember, um, you know, I was probably eight, nine. Um, I remember talking with him uh, and I emphasize the with because I, um, I know there is a lot of discussion in disability studies about uh, people with intellectual disabilities, especially with what some people like to call profound disabilities, or some people use the word severe disabilities, to try to um, take away the sense of cognition, and especially the sense of agency yes. from, from these kinds of people. And I, I, um, I always felt that there was a sense of agency, especially this, what you're saying, this sort of relational agency, because in many ways, what really um, enhances our capacity to be powerful is, is that relational agency, the sense of interdependence that we can, uh, complementing our um, pieces of agency, we can build into a new, uh, different kind of agency that transcends what we are able to, to do individually. Um, so I, I really appreciate mm -hmm. your introduction to to this in terms of the the, the grounding of the, the whole conversation around agency as something that's already there. Yes. Um, and it's exactly. it's a matter of tapping into it and making it flow. It, it's it's almost like the what they're now talking about doing with hydrogen, right? That, that they want to activate hydrogen to become the, the, the big energizer of the future and uh, traveling to space with a lot of these hydrogen things that are is already in our atmosphere and has not been activated in that way. Perhaps something like that is, is a good metaphor for, for what agency is and how it works, except that it, it grows and it gets enhanced by our relational connections. Right? Yes.
Absolutely. This is such an awesome comment. Thank you, Alexis. To this, I would like to react by saying, first of all, that one of the best applications, I think, of Vygotskian scholarship was in the case of deaf, blind, mute uh, uh, children who were uh, deaf and blind from birth and uh, the program of um, social work and education of these children was awesome. And I consider it to be one of the main uh, interesting applications of Vygotsky's research, the work of Mishirikov. I personally was at the present at the PhD defense by one of these children who became a psychologist and defended his PhD. So Warov was his name. It's described in the literature if you're interested. He was um, speaking through a translator by means of tactile signs. Uh, to the palm of the hand of the person who could then speak for, because there were not yet any technology to voice uh, the, the words of this person. But uh, just to mention this, because you spoke about that, and uh, just to remember, I remember this particular experience where I was present at this defense, PhD of the dissertation, describing the experiences, the, the growth, Mm, and the scholarship of Suvorov was awesome. And th that was based on acknowledgement of agency, voice, abilities. And this was done in the sense of solidarity and communion. So, yes, and, uh, I mean, it's totally, by the way, consistent with Vygotsky to say, I am because we are. That's the African-American uh, saying. It comes from, I think it's from African philosophy, uh, saying that we, uh, I am because we are. And Vygotsky's scholarship is in this sense. I am because we are, and it's through others that I become, it's through others that we become ourselves. So it, it really, the sense of communion, I, sometimes it's called relational, Yes, approach. I, I think it needs to be pushed even beyond relational with words such as communal, communitarian. Um, yes, uh, like along these ways, I'm working, by the way, on, on, this page, on this point right now, just writing about how we could use the terms such as intercommunalism. That's from New... Uh, uh, Hugh New Newton, the intercommunalism. So it's so much more than just an interaction between people. It's just a profound, uh, profound belonging of people together and being able to do things when doing them in solidarity, in communion, and so on. So that's my like brief reaction to your words, Alexis, thank you. And if you want me to tell like a story story on agency, then let me just point out one work, which I often do, I point to works of the students who I work with, and these are PhD students, they defend, they publish their work, they're awesome uh, scholars, and I always learn from them. So one of the dissertations was about very young children's agency by Noah Hertzenberg, very young children, two to three years old. And uh, just following them and looking at uh, their situations, their uh, life in the context and through the lens of agency and just noticing it, noticing, being able to notice how this young girl who was around three, how she had to say no 70 times a day to her parents. And this was not uh, anything outstanding or outrageous. It was normal, nice family, nice child, nice 
parents taking care of this child. And yet the child had to say no 70 on average, 70 times a day. 70, 70, not 17. Just the child was in a constant struggle to be heard, to be seen, to be listened to. So I think it's amazing. Very young children are, you know, there is a scholarship on uh, the adult imperialism and how we disregard children in terms of their rights, in terms of their voices, in terms of their agency. So I think this is a wonderful story that children say no. And this connects to the work by another student I'm working with, Kushia Sugarman. She just yesterday uh, discussed the topic of refusal and how much students, especially marginalized students in schools, how much, how often they have to refuse the uh, routines and the controls, the, the oppression basically in schools that they undergo. And they refuse in various ways, also saying no, just dropping out of schools, um, resisting and refusing, sometimes silently, sometimes very vocally, but we need to understand also and connect to the broader context of politics, of society, of what's going on on the ground in these schools and beyond, of course, in our society, which is on fire, I believe. I use this expression very often with so many issues to deal with. So that's another like example of this work. And then, of course, I always mention the work of Eduardo Viana, who I was uh, working with as academic advisor and doing work in a group home for boys and really being able to get across to the boys who were oppressed in the extreme, very young, abandoned by the, very often by the whole world and left uh, to be subjugated by the system of control and domination. And he was able to get through and to get across their voices. And uh, as a result, you know, the boys were, I think their voices and agency was elevated to the extent that the whole group one was changed and uh, they were uh, expressing themselves in ways that were impossible not to to acknowledge and so the whole situation changed basically it's, uh, it's thinking, work yes dr sesenko you, you mentioned the the young children's work and and i think as many parents would probably appreciate that because i experienced this with my children who are no older but i do remember clearly when when they were younger that agency came out a lot stronger than it is now, and I and, and I find myself wishing as oh, as yeah. a parent that mm -hmm. they still have they still maintain yeah. that agency because right now I feel like and, and I think this speaks to sort of larger issues going back to what you mentioned about uh, the quote you mentioned with Mandela that 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 there's great power that can be realized and and I yes. I feel like so much of the time is that that there are systems, uh, the school system, right? The political system that, that aims to squash that agency. Yes. And so I, I noticed as a parent then of the, these young children that I have who were constantly pushing back against me that they're all of a sudden very compliant now. And, yes. and, and, and there's that, that agency in many ways is lost. And I think 
and, and I feel like there, it is intentionally, whether it's a parent, right, whether it's a system, whether it's the education that they're they're going through with very compliance based is really enforcing. Uh, and then and then to just share that my oldest uh, child has a disability, mm. uh, and I feel like that he's always enacting his agency yes. till this day, and he's nineteen, and he actually hasn't. I think he's he's his agency, his sense of agency. Uh, has been different in in that it hasn't subsumed at all, and and I think that it's it made me like as a parent, as as somebody who does disability studies as well, like appreciate that mm-hmm. agency and as as an act of resistance. So I I just wanted to share that because I know that there are probably many parents who are also engaging with the podcast who have young children or or had this kind of maybe similar experiences as well. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. Absolutely. And I, I should mention that Noah Hershenberg, who did this work with very young children, he did use the transformative activist stance, uh, like uh, applying it in these wonderful ways. And then uh, he is also the director of a daycare program. And he changed it based on acknowledging the agency of uh, of these very young children and, and working with teachers together to change the lens for us to see that Oh, it shouldn't be top down. It shouldn't be just one way street. It shouldn't be us imposing, you know, our rules, our which doesn't mean we're completely out of the picture, not at all, but just interaction based on a very different set of rules. And he brought it into reality. So he's publishing his book soon. It's coming out. He has published already um, a couple of papers, and the book is very soon to be out. And uh, He's doing it in practice. It is possible to change the whole, the whole, the whole zeitgeist, the whole atmosphere and pra- social practices of how we treat children, uh, which is also what Eduardo Viana's work showed in the group home and Noah Hirschenberg's uh, work with uh, daycare and now Kushia and other students who I work with. They are they are applying this kind of a lens, not necessarily, you know, in one uh, uniform way with different foci, with different, so for example, Kushi with a focus on um, <clears throat> refusal and then another student, uh, Francisco Medina, just changing the way we teach in a community college without imposing anything. Like, how about that? And this is a topic that is very close to me, which I don't know if we transition to it now, but in any case, I want to mention that that's the theme I've been working on for in the past several years, which I <clears throat> metaphorically term or use the expression, stop teaching. We need to stop teaching. We just need to stop it. Just stop it, stop it, stop it. I mean, it has to be said directly. Does it mean we abandon the uh, profession of a teacher? No, but we teach and learn at once. And we change the top down. And of course, people have said it before. And of course, we know it already from Vygotsky that there is obuchenia, teaching and learning as one process. But we never listen. We almost like we ignore and we pa- we walk past this point that we need to stop it, to stop teaching, stop teaching the canons, stop teaching as if it's something just that needs to be delivered to students and they are passive recipients as if they're just there to to be filled with content. And yes, Freire spoke about that and wrote about that, many, many critical educators. But I think it needs to be brought in a very 
very direct and uncompromising form to teachers, to educators, that we need to stop it. And uh, I was giving a talk recently, and there were lots of, in the audience, there were uh, uh, students who are now in the teacher training program. And they almost froze when I said, stop teaching, because it's very unexpected. What do you mean, stop teaching? Yes, stop it. So I had to say stop it. But this is... Yeah, the, um, I have a, a quote that I want to ask you about, but I, I think it would be useful because we're trying to build a global audience. And, start mm -hmm. and you are viewing color. There may be Show thumbnail. There may be some people who are not familiar with Vygotsky or mm -hmm. Marx who are going to be foundational in our conversation. Um, what do you think it would be useful to have a little primer? on both Vygotsky and Marx. Uh, I'm thinking, for example, of this idea of zone proximal development, mm -hmm. which is interesting mm -hmm. because um, in that Vygotsky was really centering on relationships between yes. children, not, not really thinking of teachers as the ones who teach, but really mm -hmm. children learning with mm -hmm. teachers. Uh, yes. the, the real teachers are the, the children Yes. With whom they play or with whom they do this or that, because mm -hmm. that's the reality of learning. Mm -hmm. it's, it's not all these authoritarian whatever who tell you mm -hmm. this or that. They, they really learn the bulk of their learning in, in, in playing, in the playground, in the, yes. you know, the everyday stuff. And I think by, mm -hmm. by centering that kind of uh, developmental aspect, um, mm -hmm. Vygotsky was really teaching us a lot of things, but I mean, I'm, I'm just centering that particular aspect. I know you, you could give us a very good primer on Vygotsky and a little bit on Marx, mm -hmm. so that um, our audience who, who are not familiar, and some, some people who think are familiar with these authors, but they are getting it in the traditionalist um, exactly. way to, to look at uh -huh. these. Um, yes. do you, could you give us a little bit of an intro to those two thinkers i think yeah well uh it would be um difficult to give like the a very brief synopsis yeah. other than but to say that by gusky and peace yeah um, but um, because I, I think it helps a lot to emphasize the whole um, idea of stop teaching yes the stop um, teaching is the emphasis look i think these two two people Whatever, yes, they shouldn't be taken as canons. That's what I do all the time. I push beyond them. I, I use some mm -hmm. tools from their works and I push beyond. So such as with Vygotsky, yes, the zone of proximal development, but then also realizing that uh, if we go deeper, we need to understand that it never happens in one-way street. And it has to be also then based on a different notion of how people are, such as that they're not passive ever. There is no outside world. I mean, that is a very radical claim, which neither Marx or Vygotsky ever did, that to say that nothing simply is, because we already are in the presence of that something that is, and therefore there is always a connection, always an engagement. By the way, it comes from very different sources, what I'm saying now, I mean, but it, it has to be put for educators, for parents, in, a, in an accessible form, while of course not also as a canon, but nonetheless like the need to radically rethink our centuries old like ideas of, of uh, passivity, 
adaptation, uh, that the world is separate from us because it's not, that reality simply is because it's not, that objectivity is the canon, which it is not, because it's always both subjectivity and objectivity. I use the term subjectivity, by the way. S slash objectivity, subjectivity, because we are part of what's going on. So that's the other theme that I bring to Vygotsky and Marx, but they laid foundations for much of this because they were the two scholars among some others, but they were very expressly about not adapting to the world as it is, because Marx was about let's change the world, let's not explain or understand the world Let's do it, but in the process of change. Change, changing the world for the better is what matters. That's Marx. Basically, that's what Marx is. Nothing more, not well, a little more than that, but <laughs> that is the core, uh, because that's the famous expression when he wrote, oh, philosophers have always tried to explain the world, but the point is to change it. But And then people begin to say, well, but we also need to understand the world. Well, no, the, the issue is that to understand is to change. To change is to understand. No passivity, no uh, passive observation was, or like uh, contemplation, but action, change, agency. So that's the mode of what I call activism sometimes. So knowing who we want to be, knowing and striving to know what we want the world to be. So this active component at the core of everything else, that I could say comes from Marx more generally, although he never said some of these things that I'm saying now. So I'm pushing him to the, um, like to this argument that I find uh, myself to be important. The same with Vygotsky, I mean, he, he laid foundations for saying that, that's what I find so useful is that everything begins as a social process. Everything is a social process first, and then it becomes what we do. And we, we do it ourselves as well, but never as I completely isolated. So the profound relationality or communality, yes, that's Vygotsky. So we combine Marx and Vygotsky together. That is already a very nice mix. We, of course, also bring in a lot of our own voices, and I'm never saying I'm never saying I have a final answer. No, because that is the whole point of uh, knowing that there is every always the next step. Always, there is always something else to put for and develop, uh, such as with the notions of stop teaching and so on. Uh, yeah, and the stop teaching is the expression of uh, much of this philosophy of non. Conformism, if you like. That's a philosophy of non-conformism. It's an activist uh, stance that I call transformative activist stance, which is, okay, who says we need to be passive, obedient, and uh, just content, rather than trying, striving, desiring, probing, challenging. And that's the opposite mode. And uh, these are very entrenched philosophies. And if we... we are in one of, or the other side of this, well, it, it's almost a dichotomy, yes, but in the good sense that we understand what that agency is valuable, that our, like Paolo was saying, that uh, children uh, have their voice and do have their agency and that we need to learn to uh, understand it and we need to learn it as we teach and we need to teach it as we learn at the same time one process no gap no gap that's the other expression i love 
is no gap between, uh, there should be no gap between teaching and learning. Yes. So that's Marx and Vygotsky, if you like. Mm -hmm. Hi there. While we intend to make our podcast as accessible as possible, we ask those that have the financial means to support us by subscribing as a patron to our podcast for as little as $5 a month. To subscribe, go to our website, disabilityed.podbean.com. By subscribing as a patron, you will help ensure that we can continue to create and share new episodes while supporting other co-conspirators who face financial and health difficulties. For those with financial difficulties, please connect with us about obtaining a free copy of our books and or engaging in additional conversations with us. You can also support the show by hitting the follow button, share this podcast with among your network, and leave us a comment and positive rating. Your support means so much. Yeah, I really appreciate that primer. And I think I appreciate you asking that, Alexis, because just in my own personal story, I didn't come across Marx until mm-hmm. probably a year or two ago. And, and I've been in this, uh, you know, education game for a long time. And, you know, one thing I want to also talk about is this idea of agency when we talk about prospective teachers. And so if you think about the the story that we talked about children with agency and 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 let's say that in that trajectory that agency is 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 essentially brought down to compliance and and then yes. you become a, a teacher to be and and you feel I, I think this maybe sense of apathy like mm-hmm. I, I can't do anything like mm-hmm. this is way beyond me I mean it's so overwhelming and so this is like, as also a teacher educator, I get a lot of these kind of questions like, well, how do we do this? Like, there's so much at risk there. I mean, and, and of course, it's it's set up that way that, uh, you know, what, what you mentioned are, are things that we should be doing are actually punishable in many uh-huh. cases. Like, yes. You're, you're, you're actually not complying. You're uh-huh. not going with the status quo and if you're going yes. against the grain then you are at risk of being in school you're being at risk of being suspended of of not being included if you're a teacher that isn't working in a school you might be actually fired right especially in our political climate right now and so mm-hmm. it's kind of you know i i just i know we're jumping mm-hmm. around a little bit i'm sorry Alexa. i know you have mm-hmm. the question next uh just mm-hmm. kind of jumping ahead a little bit like uh, mm-hmm. you, you quote Baldwin uh, in, in yes. that famous quote about like, we have to be able to go for exactly. broke, right? Like yes. I'm, I'm paraphrasing here. I was just uh, going to say it, yes. Yeah, but 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 the my question then is like, when you talk to your prospective teachers, like what 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 kind of, how do you respond to this sense of apathy, if you will? Mm-hmm. I totally connect to this question, absolutely. Yes, you know, of course, the fall semester just ended recently, and through all of this semester, we would, this was on developmental psychology, actually. It's a small class, PhD class, and uh, the main topic that came throughout is that, do we dare? Do we, is it even worth it trying? Is it possible? And uh, uh, the thing is that, uh, yes, of course, Baldwin uh, had his answer, which is absolutely fantastic here. Yeah. If, if we are educators, we have to to dare. We have to, you know, try things and 
I don't I don't call on anyone to like go to the barricades, but just the notion that um, as things are, they, they won't stay the same anyway. So they are changing already, and there are so many changes underway, and we will be on either one or the other side of these changes. So I just want to share that that's a story that it wasn't me really who then convinced those, especially in the class uh, in the fall semester, who were most skeptical, but these were other students in that class. And by the end, the most skeptical students, they said, okay, I'll try. So they said, okay, I will try to do things in a way that is non-compliant. And it can be in different ways, such as te not teaching science as a canon, and science is not a canon. Bible is a canon. Science is not. So we shouldn't pretend that science is like established once and for all. No, science is done by breaking the, the rules and canons. That's how science is done. You know? <laughs> we do know it, right? I mean, that's what science is. It's about like uh, putting into doubt, into question, and then moving on to new, to new ideas, new points, and so on. And yet we teach science as if it's all established, set in stone. It is not set in stone. That's how we should teach it. Do people fire us if we say science is not a canon? It requires ingenuity, creativity, innovation, daring. Do we want science? If we do want science, we want this in the classroom. And not just uh, uh, road memorization, because it does not work. And that is, by the way, also what developmental science is about, the, the study of uh, the mind of teaching, of uh, learning, of knowledge processing. It's how it never happens uh, in a passive way. If we teach in a passive way, the knowledge goes into one ear and come out, comes out of the other. It just doesn't stay. It just does not work. We want our education to work or not. If we do, then we know that it has to be done differently. Okay, does it mean being on the barricades? It's up to each and everyone to decide whether you go to on a barricade and protest what's going on in your uh, school or class or community or in society at large in the world, or you do it in ways where you also, and by the way, these are not opposing ways, or whether you come to a classroom with... Uh, as who you are, and you are also not completely neutral and mm, not a passionate. You are passionate. The other thing is that you never impose this on other students, but you come with your passion for, for example, for how science should be, how the world should be. So anyway, so I just want to share that at the end of the semester, the other students who are some of whom were part of clinical psychology program, and they were saying like the way we treat our clients or, you know, those who come to therapies, and these are PhD students for clinical psychology. And they said, it makes such a huge difference whether we understand pe people as passive, obedient, under control of circumstance, or we, we give and acknowledge the voices, the agency of family members, for example, of children who break the gender norms today. And we see them as not just, you know, some kind of... Uh, you know, whatever unimportant, but important ways to explore how the world can be otherwise. Anyway, I, I guess, I, I don't know if this comes across as I mean it, but it's just about, yeah, I mean, that's why I think we are in education. Education is about the future and about how the world will be, because education is about working with uh, younger generations 
in the hopes that this is where the future worlds are made. You know, if we are in education, actually, I think we have an obligation to be daring and um, to try our ways in uh, whatever way we see possible. Right. I, I think um, the quote I wanted to bring up summarizes a lot of what you have already said. Um, uh, and then perhaps, um, Paolo, do, do you mind putting it up um, so that the mm -hmm. uh, folks who are watching the podcast can, share alert. Can, video. can see the video? At, I mean, the, the quote that we're referring to, this is uh, mm -hmm. what Dr. Stetsenko has written. I, I just love the way it defines education and mm -hmm. it, it um, challenges people to see education in terms of, of these self-becoming and yes. the, the transformational aspects of the world. Um, yes. So do, do you mind reading it, Paolo, so that we can, through this quote, jump into the Vygotskian questions? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I also love this quote. So the quote uh, is shown here on the screen and it states, therefore, for education, it is critical for learners not so much to grasp how things are in the here and now, since to put it plainly and straightforwardly, this is an impossible and futile task. Rather, the critical task for education is to support, promote, advance, scaffold, and furnish spaces and ways for learners to expand their abilities, which are in place from the get-go, of joining in with transformative struggles or collective projects currently underway, always already taking place in the world, including, importantly, as these implicate projects of our own becoming. That is, the task of education is to facilitate learners joining with and finding their own unique place and role within ongoing struggles of synchronically co-realizing the world and ourselves. Thank you so much for reading this out. Sometimes I do have long sentences. Apologies for this. Yes, but the point there, um, unless you want to ask something specific or do you want me to comment? If you would like to come in and, you know, essentially trying to transition into our discussion, I asking, which will yes. be coming with uh, some of the rest of questions that Paolo has for you. Right. So the, the like really what is underlying this is still the same notion that we're not separate from the world. So what's going on in the world? What's what's going on with us and what's happening to us, what our own becoming, this is one and the same process. We, we cannot extricate ourselves from the world. We cannot say there was this famous line, uh, the, 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 the line that I critique, but uh, the, the quote there was, I, a stranger and afraid in a world I never made. So that's the spirit of like, I'm alone, I'm afraid, I'm in the world that I have nothing to do with, I have no agency, I have no power. And um, by the way, both Marx and Vygotsky and many scholars in this tradition of what I call the philosophy of resistance, I would add now refusal based on Kushia, Sugarman's works, but anyway, many of whom are philosophers of color, scholars from the global south, scholars uh, who come out of the 
study of disability, whatever term we use here, but those who face the challenges, uh, face the struggle of um, impediments, of oppression, of um, exclusion, those scholars have their answers in the best possible way of saying we are not separate from the world. We are, we are uh, parts of the world in its becoming, and we are becoming together with it as we act, as we also take a stance and become implicated and engaged. We always are already implicated in what's going on. That's the, by the way, that's the message basically. Okay, students are this. Students are despairing and they're cynical and they're skeptical, but they already play a role. And that maybe their attitudes of this type already are sustaining the status quo. But and it's important to realize that things can be otherwise, by the way, which is one of the most important, perhaps like underlying themes also, that things can be otherwise. They 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 cannot stay the same, actually. They will be otherwise. And the the the, the question is, how do we participate and contribute to these changes that are ongoing? They are ongoing. The struggles are ongoing. So that's the transition, of course, to other questions as well. But the, this expression of the core realizing ourselves and the world, that's the key. With, 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 uh, because we, as we change ourselves, we do change the world as well. As we change the world... This is the changing of ourselves. It's one and the same process. There are not two processes, just as we're teaching and learning. These are not two processes. This is one. It's the nexus of the two. It's like we only just we only imagine that these are two things that somehow overlap, somehow just come together a little bit, but no, they're one and the same always. The same with us changing the world and the world changing us and the core realizing the both at once happening so then uh, it really is about the situated struggle uh, on the ground it is about connecting to what's going on ultimately it's about connecting to what's going on in your community in your uh, neighborhood sometimes in the world what's going on so I think that's also the important implication for teaching uh, and learning of course both at once but making sure we connect to what's going on and which means that we also connect to uh, the political events yes and no one has the right to impose anything but we need to be able to hear to listen to see what's going on and uh, we are implicated, whether we want it or not, but uh, that's the issue of agency and the tools for it. I really like what in, in the articles that uh, we, we've been talking about, how you write about Bogotsky and, 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 and what you mentioned about crisis or uh, kind of connecting those and, and how we often don't think about Bogotsky in the context of Vygotsky, where yeah. uh, I really, I mean, I learned from your writing that Vygotsky was going through a, a revolutionary yes. sort of crisis in, in that moment that he was producing some of the works that we were using today. Mm -hmm. And so, I, I yeah, if, if I think it'd be good if you kind of talk a little mm -hmm. bit more about that and, and this connection to crisis and, and maybe even... Uh, as as we're recording this now, I mean we're in 2024, but mm -hmm. there are so many crises that are going yes. on uh, right now that 
uh, yeah, I, I just wanted to to kind of have you share some of those your thoughts. Exactly. As well. Exactly. This is so important. Yes. So the first thing to say is that very often with I have it in my introduction to the book uh, that very often when we people are in the midst of most profound changes, people don't know that that's already what. So then the few maybe years pass, I don't know, months, sometimes people look back and say, oh, that's when everything happened. Oh, we didn't know we were in the midst of this profound uh, change and uh, when the whole world shook and changed. Very often, that's that's the importance of connecting to what's going on. Very often, we do not see or hear or understand the changes on the way. But I think through our students, we get to hear and to, to understand. That's the part, again, connecting to learning from our students, especially coming from underprivileged communities, especially marginalized students. They know what we don't know, what's really going on. They know the situation in uh, uh, really poor areas. We are privileged. We don't hear and don't know. Vygotsky was in the midst of a revolutionary change. How It was long ago. It was in an exotic place. And very often people just don't have enough tools of uh, like connecting to what was it. But I mean, it's very simple. It was a revolution. The, the world order the, of that society was changed, was dismantled, and there was an attempt to develop society on the basis of social justice principles. Yes, that that pro project didn't work out well. There were many problems there, absolutely. But nonetheless, the impetus, the, the striving was for uh, trying to develop new education, new uh, psychology for a new society at the same time. So that's the Vygotskian really work, which I wrote, by the way, about in the early 2000s, saying like we need to de-domesticate Vygotsky in that sense, saying him as political, as speaking mm -hmm. from within the project of how do we develop new ideas about ourselves, about the mind, knowledge, society, teaching and learning from within this really radical upheaval and uh, okay are we in the midst of upheaval i personally think we are some of my students certainly uh, i learned from them what's going on and they come from the classrooms where they say their students um are hungry and uh, collapse because they didn't have enough food and uh, other students are from uh, newly immigrated families and they find themselves uh, without support, without, uh, you know, necessary assistance and so on. Uh, I know of students, okay, that's a touched uh, subject, but uh, because there are many of them as teachers in schools and Unfortunately, there is even an epidemic of suicides among middle school students. Middle school, you can look up statistics, by the way. It's not about statistics, but it's it's appalling. It's it's a tragedy. I have a student who comes and tells me her student in the middle school took his own life. Okay, do we even say it? I know it can be, maybe I should be giving like a warning sign that this is such a difficult subject, but we need to be able to see it and to connect. So we're, which is to say we're in the midst of a crisis. Yes, thank you, Paolo, for mentioning this. And this is hidden very often. But who is seeing it? 
the teachers who work in the in the, in the Bronx, in Harlem, in very often in marginalized communities with uh, very meager support for schools in uh, nearby from me in Orange and East Orange, and that's where the group home was and still is. But schools that I happen to know, Jersey City, it, it has it has been gentrified, but uh, you know. We all are not probably, I don't know, many of us are shielded from this, but for teachers, I guess uh, that's a profession where we, we get in touch with what's going on with the world. And that's where maybe our inspiration can be drawn from, uh, if we learn to listen and to hear from our students who are in the midst of this earth shattering crisis, where students are hungry, yes, and where Things are not getting better, but yes. yeah, and I think that there, I feel like there's also with the crisis we could talk about the climate crisis, and then yes. also like there is a, a shift I would say in how our young folks are are thinking about uh, issues of Palestine, for yes. example, right? Yeah. That that that's a big change from even uh, maybe a few years ago. Uh, and, and there's there's such a worldwide opposition to to what the U.S. is doing and, and yes. how we are realizing a lot of us that we, we are in the U.S. that we're in in the belly of the beast and, and so oh, we yes. have right these these wars going on these conflicts going on and and in the in, in the brink of uh, a world war and yes. and and yet and I'll go back to the. The situation I mentioned earlier that, uh, and, 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 and this is, I guess, maybe the question relates to, like, you, you talk about, like, how do we radicalize Bogotsky? Yes. So, yes. so, like, what in all these crises that we talked about today, you know, what, what, what would that mean, like, for, yes. for teachers, exactly. for parents, right, to, well, to have these conversations? Thank you for mentioning this. I'm totally on board with this. I'm in complete awe as to how our students were able and are able to express this opposition to what's going on in Palestine and to come out with the strong voices, unequivocal position, and to condemn and to uh, call to account uh, of what's going on. And uh, with unprecedented agency of these students, at the City University of New York, of course, we're in the midst of this with all the demonstrations. And uh, but not only, by the way, City University of New York, I must say, NYU and Columbia were also on the um, on the in the headlines and everywhere. The students there, brave students, who brave to come out and say things that not all of us can say, although we are privileged. And by the way, I need to say that all of what I'm saying today is with knowledge that I am a privileged person, yes. And uh, so much of what I'm saying is what I learned from students and teachers who I work with. So, okay, so just to make sure about that. But yes, Paola, basically, yeah, we are in the belly of the beast. You know what? I just used that expression in my other talk. I was talking about education. And I was saying, like, the education is the belly of the beast as well. It is the belly of the beast. That's where students are taught that they don't matter. They are said that they are their agency is taken away. They are taught to, they are controlled, they are oppressed, and so on. And we play a role in that, all of us. I'm not excluding myself, unfortunately. Although I'm trying to push 
against that, but in a very modest way. Yes, it's the belly of the beast. I totally agree with you on so many levels. I come from a place which was called the evil empire. Now the question is, well, let's see. Let's look around and see for who really is, you know, and the belly of the beast. I share your view. Do you see what I mean? But it's not about even labels. So, you know, it's about that we are all implicated also. In one way, including in education. And so, so to change all of this, we radicalize Vygotsky. We need to radicalize ourselves as well. I do what I can. I, For example, one of the ways, my modest ways, okay, is that I never impose on students like any canon for their, their works, uh, dissertations, proposals. They are there to... to offer new ways, to try out new ways. There are no canons. And sometimes we really have to struggle with our with other members of committees who say, oh, you need to have a table. Unless you have a table, you have nothing. To a student, what table? Like, what kind of an approach is this? There are no tables to take with us. Uh, there are these younger students, uh, younger generations. They are awesome. They are daring. And we are there to learn and join them and offer whatever we can offer, hopefully. So from, you know, I have the work on in terms of whether the master tools can dismantle the master house. Of course not. So I have an article about that in dialogue with the Audre Lorde that we need to make these tools our own. Yes. And there is knowledge that is useful, but only if it's made relevant situated, connected, and engaged by students themselves. Anyway, there are so many nuances. I am at a loss even like, oh, there every step of the way there is a nuance here and there, but but I feel like we're speaking in unison, okay. Right, I, I was thinking of the need to connect agency with solidarity mm -hmm. in a much more activist way, because sometimes, um, I remember this uh, thinker who was talking about um, Ruben um, Gustavo Fernandez from the University of Toronto, mm -hmm. uh, talking about this issue of solidarity in English is, is a noun as opposed to how in Spanish or Portuguese it's used as a verb. We, we use the word solidarizarse mm -hmm. in Spanish to talk about solidarity as a verb, not as a noun. I love it. Uh, I, I need in, a reference, please. <laughs> yeah, in Spanish, uh, in, in English, it tends to be something much more distant. Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm, I'm in solidarity with you, but I don't do anything to show solidarity. Mm -hmm. So the agency yes. of those who dare to do yeah. this becomes an isolated agency yes. that um, addresses the crisis mm -hmm. in, in a limited fashion yes. um, without the power of those who are in agreement, but they they don't really do anything yes. uh, to bring about solidarity. So how do you how do you how do you think we we could uh, bridge agency and solidarity through mm -hmm. the way we do schooling or with the way we do uh, fuse uh, teaching and learning as a single process, as you mentioned before? Yes. By the way, but you mentioned the, the word in Spanish. It reminds me to mention also that one of my colleagues, who is a Chinese-speaking person, he said, in Chinese, there is one verb for teaching and learning. It's one and the same uh, word. So I can look it up. It's um, I have it uh, somewhere written up in uh, Chinese. 
maybe it was I'm not sure which particular type of Mandarin or another uh, expression of this word, but that's what I was told. I don't speak Chinese. By the way, my Turkish colleague said that uh, to teach and to learn it is almost the same word, ogrimek and turgrimek. So sorry if I mispronounced, but I have written, written it up. That's a little bit on the sideline, but that does showcase a little bit that I do work with people all over the world. Uh, my students come from all parts of the world. I'm lucky to be at the City University of New York, which is prizing itself on the mission to uh, to have students from marginalized communities, first generation students, students, uh, from our, uh, students of color. And that is what is indeed so important to me. I, I couldn't be anywhere, I think, other than the city, university of New York, but maybe other places are equally good. I don't know where you are. But uh, very proud that uh, there is the sense of the world, you know, in uh, of what's going on in the world, in my classroom, my, my our classrooms. So that is the solidarity which is alive. And uh, what I can do is not to be an impediment to the, the work they want to do. And I'm there to, in the role of uh, someone who also wants to step aside and to give their agency the primacy at the, so that nothing feels top down ever, including that the students I work with, the PhD students, for example, they uh, might never read my works, and that is totally fine. I think that's like perfect, absolutely. There is no no need to know or read my work uh, if they don't feel it's it's relevant to them, and uh, it's just a different. I, I hope I'm trying to enact also a different sense of, you know, horizontality and not anything top down, anything. I'm very proud to say I don't think I've ever be, been on any top down kind of position on any. Luckily, right, just due to my personal path, being like you know an immigrant scholar and uh, transitioning across many different parts of the world, having my accent, having my strange name. So I was never put on any pedestal, luckily, you know, and that's the best, of course, to not enact the top-down approach. I'm very proud of that and very happy to not have awards and, you know, like, whatever. Whatever comes sometimes with <laughs> with with this, uh, with our work. I did get one award recently, and I said it broke my identity. It did bre break my identity because I, I was proud of not having any award. Okay, I wanted to mention this. It's a little maybe off topic, but um, I don't know. I mean, the personal is part of it as well. Our personal stories, our who we are, how we see ourselves, how we change with time. While being in the belly of the beast, yes, in so many ways. There is a, role, a lot of people in rural America who probably have to drive a few miles before they see another human being. Yes. Of course, that's, that's the same for uh, a lot of places. And if you have uh, connectivity problems mm -hmm. uh, with a digital divide, even yes. in this globalized world, exactly. you, you get a lot of people who are isolated um, and so their agency sometimes comes from that isolation and their sense yes. of urgency 
yes operates differently um mm. than than what you experience in new york and, yeah. and the metropolitan condensation of the globality of the world yes uh in a real village i mean in the literal sense yes. um, i i think it's it's very interesting how as you said um you are part of your own becoming through those environments yes that, um co-realize you they, mm -hmm. they make you be who you are Mm -hmm. because you are in Oklahoma or because you are in New York um, and and perhaps agency and solidarity operate uh, a lot of a lot of times through that contextuality that sense mm -hmm. uh, embeddedness that we have right exactly absolutely thank you for this and I do want to say that's one of those nuances that needs to be mentioned I didn't mean to put New York above other places it's just one way and City University of New York is where you feel the pulse of the planet very easily, but you can feel the pulse of the planet in any part of where you are. It's, it really is about engaging and wanting to connect and wanting to be engaged. And that comes also for some people. It might be difficult because they will work 12 hours a day or they don't, they drive long hours and so on. So it really is back to the point of not prioritizing anyone above anyone else and not saying, oh, someone knows better. I mean, that's the spirit here. I hope it comes across that no one knows better and it's for people themselves to find their own answers. Our students to, to be in their own projects, activist projects of their own stance and position. And who are we to say, to them that we know more. Uh, not at all, by the way, which brings me also to one more nuance that Vygotsky does have a tinge of Eurocentrism. So I do, didn't have time today, but it's very important I'm working on this also like, because he did believe in the, like, the progress of humanity as a whole. So it needs to be, it's not the same as uh, with many very, really toxic forms of Eurocentrism, I don't think, but we have to be careful also to not, go along with uh, everything he said or, you know, absolutely no need to, again, to put anyone on the pedestal. And uh, there are faults there and uh, we need to be open to this as well. No one is there as an icon or a canon. No. We, right. uh, so when, <laughs> when we center the foundational work of, um, yeah, two European thinkers. Um, yeah, I think it's great you mentioned it. You, you absolutely. And I link that along with Freire, yes, Mandela, uh, uh -huh. all, all these other thinkers who are contributing. Yes. Yeah, to this epistemic transformation. Absolutely, James Baldwin, Audre Lorde, Gloria Anzaldúa, Linda Tuhiwai Smith. I I do use. I mean, through my book, I never emphasize it, but I mean there. Are, there are so many voices uh, of scholars I learned from and I calmly join like this type of scholarship where it's not about Eurocentrism and one knowledge and one above the other. Uh, and uh, yes, it's not by chance I start with Nelson Mandela and uh, go with uh, other, you know, really so much of change, the spirit of Du Bois, James Baldwin and the others I mentioned already, but I'm doing more and more of that. As uh, as you know, of course, there is such a great need and urgency for that. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Tsetsensko, we really appreciate uh, this great conversation and 
to go back to what you said earlier at the start of the conversation, we when you stated we all matter, and I think that your works and the conversation we had today really embodied that, that we all matter. And we talk about disabilities as a group, which is, is very much isolated, but also recognizing the, the radical agency that is happening uh, there as well. I think uh, there's so much that uh, you offered us today for us to think more about, to to learn with. And so we really appreciate um, you joining our community here to, to share uh, all the wealth that you have shared with us today. So for, for those who want to learn more about your work, uh, is there a way that they could connect with you? Oh, absolutely. And by the way, it's my pleasure really to share and I want to learn more from you and your community. And uh, if you have events, please please let me know. I would come and listen. I want to listen and learn. And as I said, it's uh, uh, as far as I understand, your community is the type of work that is where the most important things happen. Because the the big privilege, you said you're a little bit, you said you were, I don't want to use it for you, but you characterized almost like you said, um, it's not a privileged place, right? No, maybe whatever, whatever the word. But sometimes the most privileged places are the most, the most, the ones who do not see and do not understand. I think your community matters absolutely. Just want to share it. If you people want to connect, absolutely, I'd be happy to. Uh, please email me anytime. I would be happy to um, answer any questions. I could provide like a, maybe a list of works that I was mentioned today that I thought are relevant where I, I work with so many voices. Like I said, hopefully it's not about me because I draw in so many voices really that uh, that's the way to connect also to, to others uh, because I was privileged to work with so many, you know, such as South Africa, Brazil, and many parts really with colleagues there and who come to New York. So anyway, it's an international, like solid, like Alexis said, the the verb, solidarity is a verb. Let's hope and try to to work in this this spirit, really. Thank you so much, um, Dr. Sesenko. It's really been a pleasure for us to learn with you th uh, today and uh, through reading your writings and, and the, the wisdom that you um, shared through through all the stuff that you've... Thank you, Alexis, so much for your words. Look, we're all just in the process of becoming, the world is shaking and trembling. We don't know even what will happen in this 2024 year, I think a lot. I personally think a lot will happen. Let's stay in touch anyway. <laughs>so much for engaging with the DES podcast. We post new episodes every few weeks. The DES podcast is made possible and sustainable in solidarity with you and those who generously volunteer their time to converse with us. We hope you join us on our next episode.